our philosophy has always been, you know, if you live in Michigan, you know, you should have the opportunity to ski. You know, you have to live through these Michigan winters. You should have the opportunity to to make it be one of your favorite seasons. And, you know, everybody has different economic status. So not everybody can buy a lift ticket and buy their family lunch in the in the cafeteria. So you, you got to make it, you know, affordable so that hopefully everybody can do it. Welcome to the storm. I'm your host, Stuart Winchester, talking some Michigan skiing today. First, though, go subscribe to the free Storm Skiing newsletter at stormskiing.com. If you're just subscribed on iTunes or Spotify or somewhere else, some podcasting service, you're missing a lot. For example, the Storm Skiing Journal article that accompanies this podcast has a ton of classic Cabaret trail maps embedded into it. And unless you're looking at those things, you're not really going to be able to fully understand or appreciate the conversation I'm about to have with Tim about how that ski area has evolved over the past four decades. You also should go follow the storm on Instagram and Twitter at Storm Ski Journal. First, let's talk about my sponsor, Mountain Gazette. The Storm Skiing Podcast is brought to you by Mountain Gazette. Founded in 1966, Mountain Gazette is a large format biannual print title celebrating mountain culture. When this thing drops on your porch, and I say that because it's too big to fit in your mailbox, you're going to wonder whether you should read this thing or frame it. The cover to the most recent issue, number 195, will absolutely floor you. It captures a hotshot firefighter mid-blaze battling one of last year's monster wildfires out west. And it's also unfortunately timely as those fires have ignited again across the west. It's not all drama though, it's also a lot of fun. Photographer Jason Roman drags us down snowy roads on motorcycles with the Crazy Eights Motorcycle Club in upstate New York. And Ryan Solomon's ecstatic photo essay on cliff jumping will have you Googling directions to your nearest mountain swim hole. Mountain Gazette owner and editor Mike Rogie is the engine driving this whole thing, and his opening editorial is absolutely beautiful. The kind of thing you read slowly and repeatedly. And when you do get to that firefighting essay by Amanda Monti, you're going to be moved by the courage and dedication of the firefighters and appalled by how little we pay them to risk their lives for half the year. There's a whole lot more. You need to subscribe today at mountaingazette.com. Enter code GOHIRE10, all one word, for 10% off subscriptions. Use code EASTCOAST, all one word, for 10% off everything else, including vintage magazine covers, which make great art for your home office or living room. Mountain Gazette. When in doubt, go higher. Episode 50, Tim Meyer, co-owner and general manager of Mountain Operations at Cabrafay Peaks, Michigan. Back to the Midwest today and to one of the best ski states in the country, Michigan. If you think that's a joke, you don't know what the hell you're talking about. Michigan has one of the most passionate groups of skiers in the world. Yes, in the entire world. It has the second most ski areas of any U.S. state. It's cold as hell, and they get tons of lake effect snow. Ask anyone who lives in a western mountain town. You cannot be there for five minutes without meeting someone who grew up in Michigan and took that passion for skiing with them to the big time. And in Michigan, Cabaret is one of the best. It's also one of the most interesting. Forty years ago, when the Meyer family bought Cabaret, The place was a two-mile-wide sprawl of hillocks served by two dozen T-bars and rope toes, and it had almost no snowmaking. 
Today, most of that has been abandoned, and the ski area is focused on two man-made peaks that the family willed into existence. It's updated, it's modern, and it's a lot of fun. And it's always improving. Always. You will never get the same Cabrefay two seasons in a row. For all the Myers have done to transform the place, there are still big, big things ahead. And this isn't Colorado, where you open a gate and suddenly have another 2,000 acres of terrain. Everything they do at Cabrefay has to be willed into existence. We're going to get into exactly what lies ahead and how that family transformed a dying operation into one of the Midwest's finest ski complexes today. Let's do it. My guest today is the part owner and general manager of Mountain Operations at Cabrefay Peaks, Michigan. Cabrefay Peaks is one of the oldest ski areas in the country. Opening in 1938 is a joint project between the Civilian Conservation Corps, the U.S. Forest Service, and the Cadillac Area Chamber of Commerce. Cabrefay has four chairlifts and a magic carpet serving 34 runs on a 485-foot vertical drop. His family has owned and operated the ski area for 40 years, transforming it into one of the largest and tallest ski areas in Michigan's lowest peninsula. Tim Meyer is my guest. Tim, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Thank you for having me, Stuart. So, Tim, Cabrefay has been around since 1938, but your family didn't buy it until the early 1980s. What did the ski area look like when your family took ownership? Well, the hill was a, a real a long ridge uh, that extended, you know, literally extended, you know, probably over a mile, and. Um, it was only about 250 vertical feet, maybe a little bit more than that in some, on, on some of the hills. And, and it was a lot of the terrain wasn't real good. You know, it was, um, like real steep and then really flat long. And, and it was, uh, there were two double chairlifts, six T-bars and 15 rope toes. At that <laughs> wow. And, uh, the buildings, everything was old. There's very little snowmaking to speak of, um, Everything was all. Everything needed to be updated. So that's what it. That's what it was in nineteen. I think it was nineteen eighty one or nineteen eighty two when we got here. So if you look at old trail maps of Cabrefay, Tim, it was huge, right? It didn't have a lot of up, but it had a lot of out, right? It was two miles from end to end, and. I have this old ski magazine guide from 1966 that described Cabrefay as having six T-bars and 16 rope toes. And then, of course, it had evolved into what you just described by the time your family bought it in the early 1980s. Just take us back, Tim. I'm sure you were a little kid then. What was it like skiing that old Cabrefay? You know, it was awesome, actually, as a kid. My memories are great. And by the time we got here, you know, we were running two, the two chairlifts. We were running, um, we were running one two, three, four, five of the, five of the T-bars and we were running, you know, maybe half the rope toes. And so as a kid, you know, you'd go out and just go all, all over the place and ride the rope toes and ski the little trails and go off the jumps. And it was a blast. That was my memory as a kid. It was really fun. I mean, it had to seem endless with, with, with what the trail maps looked like, because as you drive up the Cabrefay Access Road now, before you make that big turn into the giant parking lot you have there by the lodge, that was all skiable. That was all part of the ski area, right? As you're, dry, as you're looking out your car to the left? Correct. Yes. 
and are there still relics back there, Tim? If, if someone was to go hiking, I don't know if that's allowed, but are some of those old rope toes and T-bars still sitting back there? Or did you yeah. take them all out? No, there's, there's stuff back there. There's, I mean, there's, there's nothing as complete, you know, but there are still some T-bar towers. Most of the terminals are gone. Some of the towers are still up there. Um, there's a, some rope toe terminals, you know, sometimes in the, even in the woods, if you get in the old tow line, there'll be a tower in the woods. It's completely overgrown. So there is a little bit of, of uh remnant out there if you know where to look are folks allowed to hike back there or, or is that private property what, what's the uh what's the situation yeah it's we have it all closed off and and marked as uh private property no trespassing and is there a chance you would ever bring some of that back into the ski area or, or is that just kind of not work for the modern capper yeah, I don't think it's going to work way out there, way on the North Ridge will probably ever work for the modern Cabrafay. We've actually got um, golf holes uh, designed and laid out back there. Um, but, I, but you know, we're not doing any anything with that right now. Um, but I don't think there's just not enough vertical drop back there uh, by today's standards, you know, and, and and it would be you can't really develop it. There isn't enough room to make the hills bigger. Um and, and you're a long ways, you know, you're really going to make a big sprawl, which is a long ways to carry utilities like snowmaking and, and power. So I don't really think that that old stuff is going to ever come back. There's also the labor consideration, right, Tim, because you need someone at the bottom, someone at the top to run these things. And I would imagine that it was a lot less expensive back in the early 80s to hire someone to do that than it would be now. Yeah, for sure. And another thing, you know, Stuart, is and why that stuff really got abandoned was when we opened South Peak, which was in 1984, um, South Peak was so much better than that terrain. It had snowmaking, it had modern grooming, it was had twice the vertical drop. And and what happened really was the skiers stopped going back there. They were all they all wanted to go to South Peak. So South Peak really is the reason that stuff got abandoned. There was no snowmaking back there, so there was very little grooming. The grooming was just when there was a lot of natural snow, and it was just a powder roller, you know, the old powder roller that mm-hmm. you pull behind the tucker. Yeah. You know, that's how it was groomed. Of course, that's all we knew, so we thought that was great. Um, right. But but that terrain really, lot, people really stopped using it when South Peak came along. So then they knew that, that they needed to keep redevelop. You know, they needed to keep developing better skiing in the in the main on the main area on the best terrain. Yeah, I do want to talk about the development of South Peak in a minute here. First, though, I just want to go back. So you grew up on the slopes of Cabrefay. I'd imagine that was a ton of fun as a kid, and then as an adult, you actually ended up out at Winter Park in Colorado. So how did you end up out there, Tim? What did you do out there, and how long did you stay out there? So you know, growing up here in in being here in the eighties when the snowmaking was limited, you know, I would remember that we would have big rainstorms that would wash out the whole hill and we'd be closed. And I remember how stressful that was as a kid, you know, you'd just be like, Oh my gosh, this is horrible. And so when I, I did go to college, I went to grand, uh, to Aquinas college in Grand Rapids, Michigan. And when I graduated, I, I just always wanted to be in the ski business. Like that was really what I knew. And that's what I wanted to do. So I just, I researched, I looked at, I looked up Winter Park and they got, you know, over 400 inches of snow a year. Um, it was owned by the city of Denver. So they had, you know, great pay, great benefits, um, good year round opportunities. So I thought that was a really good place to go. 
and learn from the big boys and be somewhere where you didn't have to worry about snow. That's how I, how I got there. Um, I had a, I was, you know, I had my degree was in business administration and I got there and I thought I was going to work in sales or marketing. And, and at the end of my first, so I got a job in guest services initially. I was a mountain host and, um, like an information host kind of, and, and, uh, it was a really fun job. And then I was trying to work my way into the sales department and, on a whim, one of the guys I worked with at the end of that first season said, hey, I'm going to take the ski patrol test. I'm going to take the test for it to be a paid ski patroller. And I thought, I don't, I don't think I have any interest in that, but I'll take the test with you. So we took the test. We passed the test. We got interviews. We got offered jobs. We took them. So I became, <laughs> a, I became a, a paid ski patroller, professional ski patroller, which was a phenomenal job. And, and I ended up staying there and, and doing that for nine more years. So I was there for a total of 10 years and I worked year round for the resort, did different jobs in the summer. Um, and, and, uh, at the end of the, at the end of my time, I was, I had worked my way up in the summer to what I used to call lower middle management. And I was a supervisor for one of the, for the outdoor, um, operations like the Alpine slide, the zip lines, the mountain biking. So I had a great job, great time. It was a great internship, and that's kind of the that's kind of the backstory. So, what was it like? You, you said you went to Winter Park because you were frustrated with not having enough snow. There's certainly no shortage of snow at Winter Park. That place is amazing. It's a lot of fun for anyone who's been there. They know uh, what was it like to get out there to Colorado after skiing Michigan growing up and just experience that Rocky Mountain atmosphere. Yeah, it was amazing. I mean, I was just like nothing I'd ever seen. You know the 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 base of the mountain is at, is at, um, 9,000 feet. So just getting acclimated to that, you know, just getting your, just getting to, getting to the point where that feels normal, you know, that took a while. Uh, but it was great. I mean, the skiing was phenomenal. Uh, the first year I was there, we had, we had, uh, uh, record snow and it was the first year that they skied a million skiers. So it was just a, just a fantastic, a fantastic experience. And I had people telling me, you know, yeah, you come for the winter, but you stay for the summer. So, you know, then I, then I spent a summer up there and I, that's even better. That's incredible. Great weather, mountain biking, hiking, the white water, you know, it's just, it's phenomenal. I, I can't really describe it. So you're out there, you're swimming in powder, you're living in this fantasy world where the summers are fantastic. There's lots to do. Like you said, you had a good job, good pay, good benefits, year round work. Then you come back to Michigan. What brought you back? So, you know, it was, it was like a three year process. Um, my dad kept, he'd, every time I'd come home, I'd usually come home once a summer. He would keep asking me to come back. Hey, I really like your help. I, I, I think you could be real helpful. And, 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 you know, these are the things I'd like to have you do. And, and it just slowly after over time, I could see that, that he really wanted my help. And also, you know, I was, I was in my early thirties and I'm, and I was a lot of the time uh, as a paid patroller in the mountains, it's physical. It's very physical. And I'm thinking, man, this is great right now, but I don't know if I'm going to want to do this when I'm 50. And maybe, you know, maybe, maybe I should think about, you know, making a change where I can use my brain a little bit more than my back. And it was just a, just a kind of thought at, after a while, I thought maybe I'll just give this a try. So I, I went for it. 
when I say your family bought the ski area, it was your dad and your uncle, right, that took over and and were running the mountain. And then now it's you and your cousin Pete, if I have that right. So just set this up for us. What did your family do roles wise, like your dad and your uncle, and then and then how did they transition that over to to you and Pete? And what do you two do these days? So. <sighs> My dad always handled all the outside operations and all and well, all the outside mountain operations, you know, lifts, snowmaking um, and all the mountain construction. And they were doing a lot of it, you know, moving earth, built, you know, taking lifts down, putting new lifts in, uh, putting in snowmaking. There was I mean, there's really no snowmaking to speak of when they got here. So they were they were doing, you know, doing the snowmaking, all the construction. And Jack. uh was in charge of um accounting he's an accountant by trade and the the business the hotel uh rental food and beverage um hr and all that all the business operations and then when they went into golf he he was jack was in charge of golf that's your uncle that's my uncle yeah okay and and so so those two are running it how did they decide okay it's time for tim and pete to take over and, and then how did you two split up the roles? So, you know, they had, they had that for them, this was a second career for them. And, and then they came and they were, they knew construction, you know, Jack had a concrete background excavating and my dad was is a civil engineer and, and knew, knew construction as well. And so they, they came back and they knew that the thing that it, the current, the way it was, it wasn't going to compete. So they knew they had to, they had to, um, expand the terrain and they had to fix this, you know, put snowmaking and they knew kind of knew what they had to do. And they were really good at that. So they built the hills and did stuff, you know, could have had the vision to do things that, that I never would be able to dream of doing and did it and, and executed that. I think it's phenomenal what they were able to do really transform the whole place. That's unreal. And, and it is, it's a, it's really remarkable. And, and then, and then they had a, you know, they finally had something that a diamond that just needed to be polished. Right. So I think they were kind of, I think they were, you know, they were getting a little older and thinking, man, it'd be really nice to have some help, some, some help in the day-to-day operations, you know? So, so, and Pete was interested in coming back and he came a year before me. And then he, he reached out to me and said, you know, asked me to come back and help him with the mountain. So then I had my dad asking me to come back and I had Pete asking me to come back. And it just seemed to, it just seemed to make sense, you know, that, that, Hey, I think it's time for, to do this. And wh- where was Pete? Where did Pete go? You went off to Winter Park. Where did he go? He went, he graduated from Notre Dame and uh, as an accountant, as a CPA, and he was working at a big, uh, a big firm in Denver. And, and uh, you know, so he had a, really good background for, for being like, a, I call him the general manager, being a general manager of a, of a resort. And so Pete handles the business and you handle the outside stuff. Yes. Yes. That's exactly how we do it. But yeah. When I, when I met you, when I was up there skiing a couple of years ago, uh, you were outside in the, in the full suit with the, with the walkie talkie, just running things. Is that your normal, uh, is that normally where you are in the winter? Yes. Yeah. I come in in the morning, I put snow pants on, I put my snow boots on and and I'm in, I'm in, I'm dressed like that all day. All right. So let's talk about the development of Caberfay. So, so as we said, when your family bought it, it was really old school. It sounded like it was really fun. 
but it was really mod. It was it was really sort of a an antique place, right? It was a, almost a ski museum. Your your family, for those who are not familiar with Cabrefay, they transformed it from this two mile wide sprawl into a, a modern ski area that's basically focused on two peaks. But the peaks are built up. So so I I believe you, and you can talk about this a little bit. Took dirt from the bottom, added it to the top, so you're you're adding vertical on both sides. So. The first one you developed, as you said earlier, was South Peak. So talk first about the decision to do that, A, and B, how did you do it? Because that's an enormous engineering challenge to to actually make a mountain. Yeah. Okay. So basically, you know, the, when when they got here in the 80s, the um, the, the resort was, was privately held, but the land was forest service land, like a lot of ski areas, you know, they had a lease with the forest service. The forest service had a lot of pride in Cabrefay. It was, it had been around a long time and they could see that it was, that it was, it wasn't going to last. And they wanted it to, they wanted it to succeed. So they were very, they were, they knew as, as my dad and his brother knew that the only way it could succeed was to be to to redevelop the hills, you know, to make, and the idea was let's get, you know, close to 500 vertical feet in Cadillac. Now we're going to have what the big boys up north have, but we're going to be closer to the markets. And and that was the idea. That was the premise. So so it was it was really a joint, um, you know, vision between the Forest Service and and my dad and his brother. And it was really my dad that had the vision of 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 how to do it. You know, how we're going to do it. And in, in the first peak, they did it with scrapers. They used big scrapers and they, and they would cut, they would, you know, the big pan scrapers and they'd, they'd cut at the bottom and then they'd haul it up to the top and they just ran them like that and ran around the clock on that one. They ran 24 hours a day. Mm-hmm. <laughs> they built it in one year. Wow. Yeah. Wow. So, so was there an idea of how tall you wanted to go or were you just going to go as high as you could until you couldn't go down anymore and couldn't go up and keep it stable anymore. Yeah, that was exactly right. Well, basically, you know, you, you, you can only cut till you hit the water table. Ideally you stop maybe two feet before you do that. And, uh, and then you, you go, and then when you go up, you know, you cut a big, you get your, you basically, you have to create your top or you're going to dump your fill and you just, you, you make that as big as you can, right? But at some point, the, the top starts to fall away. So you, you, you basically take your big flat area and you take all the trees out of there. And then you start to, you start to fill and you go up and up and up. And then the, what stops you is, is the top, right? You, you have to have enough room to land a lift and have place for skiers to stage. So that's, that's, that's what ends it. How do you stabilize that top, Tim? You know, for those who aren't familiar with Michigan terrain, it's, the fortunate part and the reason why you were able to do this from my point of view is there's really no rocks in the soil, right? In at least in the lower peninsula of Michigan. Uh, but, but then, you know, you need something to stabilize it. So, so can you talk a little bit about the advantages of having that type of soil in Michigan? And then how do you actually stabilize it? Do you, do you plant trees? Cause the, the, the tops are still fairly bare, but I don't necessarily know if you need trees all the way to the top to stabilize the soil. Yeah. So it's, you know, if you're, you're mainly moving sand, you, there's some clay veins, but you're mainly moving sand. So sand, if you just leave it there, it's like a sand dune, right? The wind is going to erode it. So what we do is we take, you know, we, when we, whenever we move earth, we have to clear trees out and we want to, and we hate, you know, we we're 
we don't want to take any more trees than we absolutely have to, but then we want to reuse the trees. So like the tops, we take the tops and we, and we put them along the edge, the edge at the top and those, that edge that like creates a natural cap and uh, protects the edge and it, and it just breaks down over time and becomes topsoil and stuff can grow in there. And then we'll use an excavator and we'll lay the trunks um, on the banks, which really helps stabilize it. And it keeps like the deer off there and it keeps the skiers out of there. And then we'll go and plant trees in between the big tree, you know, between the tree trunks uh, that in time will grow up and take over. And then on the top, because it's just blow sand, we've learned, um, you know, that, that we can just put rye. We can just buy rye from a local farmer. And we can put rye right on that bare sand and it catches and turns green. And it give, and sometimes you have to do it a couple times, but usually that's enough. And then that just a lot, kind of nutri- puts nutrients in the sand and it turns it into soil and then stuff starts growing. We don't care what it is as long as it's green. Yeah, you need, you need to have some stability up there because you do have lift terminals up there. Have those been stable for 40 years? Have, have, was that enough to, to make it so you could have something as big and complicated and heavy as a lift? Landed yeah. up there? Yes, amazingly. Yeah, they're, they're yeah, they're good. And now, you know, if people don't even really know that those because we also plant trees up there. We try to make them look as natural as we can. And people really don't even know that they were built up. They look natural enough that 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 it's, you know, it looks it looks like it was always there. Yeah, the, the first, you know, when I was a teenager, I started skiing at Cabrafe and it took me a while to figure out that those were artificial hills built up because I wasn't familiar with the history at the time. This was the mid 90s. So um, it, it always fascinated me. So it's really interesting to hear this story. Was there precedent for that, Tim, for building up an artificial hill? I, I know there's a lot of ski areas around the country, municipal ski areas built on, for example, disused garbage dumps. But but had anyone taken a, a hill and there was they had skiing existing on it, a small hill, and built it up. Or, or did your family pioneer that that style of of building up a ski resort? You know, there there are other areas that did build do builds, and I don't know what order or what years they did them. But there's there's some areas downstate that did some that did some build ups, but nobody's done anything near to the near to the scale. Of, nobody that I know of has done anything near to the scale of what Cabrafe's done. So you built up South Peak, as you said, that pretty much made people abandon those rope tow areas, you know, fun as they might have been, as you said, the vertical was negligible and there wasn't snowmaking back there. So, um, so did that drive, besides driving skiers over to that area, did it drive more skiers to Cabrafe? Did it, did it ignite a turnaround? Because I don't think the ski area was in great financial shape when your family took it over. So did this help make it more stable as a business? Yeah, it absolutely did help. Yes, it did. It helped. Um, and, but they knew that they knew that, you know, you have basically one good lift and then the rest aren't very good. So they, they, need, they needed more, you know, so they, and, and so then at that time, that's when they, they were able to make, do a land exchange with the forest service and get and acquire the land. And then they could, and then that, then that would made it easier to develop it. Cause then you could just do, you know, do what you needed to do. And, and, um, uh, and, and, and then the Forest Service didn't have to worry about it anymore. Yeah, it's, it's a nice little ski pod, and it's serviced by that triple chair. And it, I believe that's the original chair that you put up in the 80s. Are, are you still happy with that chair? Is it in good shape? Yeah, it's in great shape. So that's that was a riblet. was brand new when it was put in. Um, and that they make a really good lift. There's tons of them still running 
all over the country. Um, and we take really good care of it. You know, we have done a lot of work on it. You know, we've put in, put in some new safety systems and, and, uh, we've basically rebuilt all the, all the shiv, all the shiv equipment on the, uh, on the line, you know, new shiv trains, new, uh, new bushings, new axles. Uh, so it's, it's actually uh, in really good shape and we hope it can run for a long, long time. One of the things that interests me, Tim, about Cabrefay is when you look at the trail maps over the years, you're just, your family is just constantly, constantly doing work, evolving it, changing the ski area, making it better. Um, I have a very specific question here about uh, the South Peak pod. Charlie and Liberty were once uh, Black Diamonds. They're once rated as Black Diamonds, and now they're Blue Squares. Just curious for folks who are familiar with the ski area, did you regrade those? Did you kind of change them because... Uh, you took another look at, at, at the at the grades on the ski area overall, or what's the story there? Yeah, so so you know it's the the way that the the, the Michigan Ski Area Safe, Safety Act reads that you know that you're you're rating them relative to your own terrain, so it's not really relative to what other ski areas rate there. It's 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 your own, and because we're always developing terrain. Um, it, it change like it change the dynamic changes a little bit, right? So now this hill, oh, this is really more relative to what we have. This is more in the middle, you know. So that's kind of what that's kind of what happened over the years. So you didn't change the trail; you just reassessed. Yeah, and it did get it did get tweaked a little bit because I don't know what year it was went from Black Diamond to Blue Square. I, that was happened before I was back here working full time, so I don't know. You know, but there over the years, early years, there was some grade changes too, and getting the you know trying to get the perfect hill. So it's possible that it happened then. I'm I I just can't answer that with total accuracy. So let's go over to North Peak. So you opened South Peak, as you say, that transformed what Cabaret was, how it skied, the perception of it, and your business. So you built it up in the same way as South. So talk about the decision to do that, was that always the plan or, or did you say, wow, people really like South. Let's do this again. You know, I, th- I think they, they had always, they had always figured that they would, they were going to build another peak and, you know, because you need, you needed that a second one, you needed another, another pod. We call them pods. You know, you needed another pod of, of really good skiing. So did you use the same process? Did they learn anything from building up South peak? that helped them do North Peak any differently or, or, or did they use the same process? Because North Peak opened not till 1992. So you had you had a few years there to kind of learn and figure out what, what the best approach was. Yeah, no, they learned a lot and they get, you know, they got different scrapers um, when they did that one that they didn't load, you know, quite, they did learn that they didn't need to overload them. Maybe just load them a little less because you're, you're, you're humping that hill, that, that's, that sand up the hill. They learned to use haul roads, you know, they, instead of trying to just like use a big dozer and push the scraper straight up the hill, they learned to, you know, make a switchback road and, you know, work their way up. Um, you know, they learned quite a, quite a lot as they went, I think. It's also gentler terrain on North Peak. It's, it's a little bit more of an intermediate peak. South Peak is a little steeper. Uh, it, it, it skis a little faster. Was that deliberate? Did they say, okay, we have our kind of more advanced peak. Let's, let's make this one a little more gentle for the average skier. Yeah, that was the idea, you know, kind of, uh, South peak was kind of going to be the advanced, you know, advanced intermediate to advanced, uh, to expert area. And then North peak would be more of an intermediate, you know, area. And so, yeah, that was by design. So North has been serviced since the beginning by a quad chair. And then in 2016, 
you added a new Doppelmeyer triple chair. That's the Vista chair. And you left the quad in service. Why did it make sense, Tim, to add another lift to North Peak? So North Peak, that complex, it's a pretty big area. There's a lot of terrain. It has a lot of area that it covers. And it's really good. I mean, as far as a, a pod of skiing, North Peak will stack up against anything in the lower peninsula and, and be at least as good, or I'm a little biased. I think it's better, but it's really, really good. And it was really, really popular. So we got a lot of, you know, the lines would get pretty long on the quad on the, on the weekends. And so we, we had a, you know, had a vision. We were, we, we thought, man, if we could put a second lift on here, um, we're not going to overload this terrain. We're just going to spread people better. Uh, we actually replaced a double chairlift uh, called the club chair, and that that lift w- only went halfway up. So we were taking, you know, those skiers and bring and bringing them all the way to the top, and then spreading them out over the whole terrain. Um, so we just we felt we needed another lift, and we felt like we wanted to have it on North Peak, so we could we could spread the, more people out on the on the most popular part of our ski resort. It was the choice to put in a triple rather than another quad, a little bit of a crowd control mechanism where you want to, you know, cut down on the lines. But as you said, you don't want to overload the peak. That's correct. We had a we had a, uh, a capacity that we were we were we were going to build that lift to. And so we looked at a quad and if we had done it with a quad, it would have just had fewer chairs with greater space. And with a triple it has a few more chairs uh, with a little closer spacing. Um, and, and we really like triples. Triples are easy. It's easier for three people to get on and off of a, of a triple chair than it is for four people to get on and off. And, you know, skiers, at least in my experience, you know, they don't really want to ride with four people on a chair unless we make them or they, they happen to be skiing in a group of four, but people will fill triple chairs on their own. They just naturally will. So we find it to be, and there's a lot less stop, a lot fewer stops. So triple, it's just easier. It's easier to get on, easier to get off. So you're not stopping as much. So now you're, you're, you're moving, people are moving and, and, and movement is really key, right? You, you know, I always talk about the, the triangle, right? You have a triangle of, you know, the bottom of the triangle is the lift line. And then you go up the triangle is, is the, is the ride up the lift. And then the, and then the ski down is the ski down. And, and as long as you can keep that thing in motion, people are generally happy. But if it keeps stopping, then the whole thing stops and then it's, it's frustrating. Yeah, I guess you answered my next question. I was going to ask if you considered a six pack and just take out the quad. Uh, but it sounds like those, those large groups uh, is something you wanted to avoid by splitting people up between two chairs. But did you ever think about a six pack? We really we looked at like a detachable quad you know, and, and just decided that that really wasn't pretty expensive. You know, you're, you're about three times the initial investment from a fixed grip lift. You got about three times the, the annual maintenance and really the capacity, a six pack would have been, you know, a possibility. The capacity of a detachable quad is the same as a fixed grip quad. So it doesn't, it doesn't really, that doesn't really help you there. So it just didn't, a detachable lift really just didn't make sense to us. So you do spin both of those uh, on busy periods still? Yes. 
Yeah, absolutely. Like a and a triple. Yep. So North, North Peak's interesting to me, Tim. I, I've always been fascinated by this run, I-75, your double black diamond off the top. I, you know, I've been skiing Caberfay for 25 years. I don't know if I've ever seen it open. Uh, how often are you actually able to open that run? We, we had it open a lot this past winter. It's just based on, based on snow. It's natural snow. So it, it, it faces west, so it, the sun is pretty hard on it. We've tried to make snow on it, but it always slides off. Um, so it's, it's just too steep to really hold a snowpack. And, and so whenever we have snow, uh, we open it. Uh, we had a patroller, uh, a paramedic from Muskegon that was, that was, would work on Tuesdays last year. And, and he always opened it when he was working. So it, it's open, it's just hit and miss. And when it starts to get scraped off, we close it because we don't want to ruin it. You know, we want to keep it, keep what with snow we have on it pretty good. And then when we get natural snow, we, we open her up. So we open it when we can. Yeah. It's a pretty nice pod, as you said, Tim. I agree with you. I really like especially the lower part of it where it gets into trails between the trees. Uh, you made a really, what I thought, smart decision a couple seasons ago in that you put up a snow fence to separate Canyon from Smiling Irishman, which which kept people from skiing across as, as they were as they tended to do. Just talk a little bit about that decision and, and how that's changed the experience of skiing North Peak. Yeah, it's funny you notice that. I I agonized over that, you know, because that was just a hard spot right there. Um, you cross traffic is just never very good, you know. In the middle of a ski run, cross traffic is just not good. It's 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 kind of stressful, and sometimes there can be collisions, and so you want to try to not have that. But but we sure didn't want to limit people's access, and I agonized over it. And then one day I just thought, I'm going to do it. I'm going to do this and see what happens. And I did it and people loved it. People, I got so much positive feedback. A few people grumbled, but most people were like, thank you for doing that so much better. Uh, And, and so we've done it ever since. Have you ever considered maybe just planting trees there to make it more of a permanent barrier? I would love to plant trees there. I think, I think maybe we can, to some extent, but it will be hard with snowmaking to get those trees to grow because that's a big area that we pound with snow. So we'll, we'll have to see if we can get a, get some to go in there eventually. All right. Let's uh, let's talk about the backcountry. I, I really like this piece of terrain. So in 2013, you opened this big chunk of of what I'm guessing is kind of part of the old Caberfay. It skiers right off of the top of North Peak um, and, and it's ungroomed. You don't make snow or at least you didn't when I was there, maybe that changed last season, but talk about the backcountry. What is it and why did you decide to open it? Well, we, you know, it is old terrain. So it's the old, if you, if for old school Caberfay people, that's the old bullnose T-bar and the old Bobuck chairlift area. That's, that's nice. what, that's what's open. That's the open, open part of what we call backcountry. And, um, and people did ski it. People used it and people skied it. And, we thought, you know, what once we got our once our earth moving and our development got to the point where we we could kind of buff some of that out and make it make it usable. We thought, why not open it and just have it be a kind of a backcountry experience? And it's backcountry because you because you ski into it, but then you have to hike out. Mm-hmm. And you're actually, it, it seems to me, you're able to have that open quite a bit. Do you have a sense of of what percent of the time you've been able to have that open? Yeah, pretty much whenever we have any kind of natural snowpack, it can be open. It's it's it faces north and it's pretty sheltered, so it, it just holds its snow really well. You're aggressive about it too. I mean, I, I was there. There there was only a couple inches base, but you had it open, and it, you know it, you were going to get a little. You know, 
mess up the bottom of your skis a little bit, but but that's a that's a user's choice, right? So I I, I like your philosophy back there. Yeah, as long as the as long as the ski patrol thinks they can get somebody out of there safely, that's the big that's the big thing, you know. Is is can we somebody gets hurt, can we get in there and get them out of there reasonably and safely? And that's always the you know the delineator. And when we decide that we can't do that, then we have to close it. So there's some interesting stuff back there. I, I there's some lines through the trees that look like old lift lines. Can you tell us anything about what we're skiing there? I, I, it looks like it was an old T-bar line. Yeah, so you're probably on the knob of Bolno of the old Bolnos. You're probably skiing the old Bolnos T-bar line, um, and and that's yeah, that's kind of cool. That's kind of hidden in the woods too, so you have to find that. Yeah, that, that that's a terrific line, and you know the trees in that whole area ski really well. Have you actually thinned any of those, or or is that just how they've grown and spaced apart because of this old growth? Yeah, that's how they've grown and spaced apart, and that and thinning is a is a you know, that's a double-edged sword and there's different philosophies. So if you thin it in the here and now, it makes the skiing better. But the uh, you you take the undergrowth out of the forest. So you're you're basically putting a finite amount of time on it, you know, so because you're not letting the regeneration happen. So most of the places in our woods, we we really love the trees and we love the forest, and we think that makes our whole character, right? You you cut the tr- runs. And then you have them lined with trees, and then the, and then the trees have you have little forest areas, and that's what makes Caberfay unique. So we're we're kind of of the philosophy of don't go in and cut the underbrush, let it grow, let it grow up, and 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 let the forest thrive, so that so that as trees die, there's a next generation coming up. It's kind of a long term approach. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the, the growth is really nice. Actually, there's some nice tree skiing on South Peak under the triple. And, and I don't remember that being open uh, a couple decades ago. I don't know if that that's a decision you've made to just allow more blade skiing, but that ski is really nice over there on South Peak as well. Yeah, we, you know, there are some areas that we, we do let people go and we, some areas we have closed off. It just depends on the area and, uh, you know, and, and, the, and the health of the forest. So are you pretty happy, Tim, with the boundaries of the backcountry terrain? Is there a chance we would see that expanded over into some of those other old peaks we were talking about earlier? Yeah, I think it, it will expand in time. Right now, it's all based on on our on our um, development. We're you know we're we're moving sand, and so we're digging out of some of those areas. So we have some of the stuff closed off because because it's kind of a construction zone that just gets paused in the winter, and uh, and in one day when we get it all you know, done and, and, and we'll, we'll do a big reveg and we'll plant a lot of trees and we'll, we'll kind of clean things up. And then I th- I could see having more area to hike to that you just hike farther over and, and ski and then have to hike back. Yeah. I could see that, that happening in time. So you mentioned Tim that when you put in the Vista triple, you took out the clubhouse double. And I believe that's still sitting there at the base of your mountain. It, it correct me if I'm wrong on that. Is there a chance you would just run that thing up the backcountry or, or any other lift up the backcountry? We, yeah, we have, we actually have two hall double chairlifts that are, that are um, the old number one chairlift and, or the old clubhouse and then the old Bobuck chairlift or the number two chairlift. So, so we're, yeah, we'll, we're been hanging onto that stuff and, and hope to put, put it up somewhere somewhere someday. That's really interesting that you're hanging on to those, Tim. I, I think most of the time, 
when ski areas take down those old lifts, they either sell off the chairs for souvenirs for skiers or they or they scrap them. Um, but those halls, those are really good lifts. Those will run forever if you if you take good care of them. Is that still what you have running uh, on for the shelter chair? Yes. A hall? Yes, it's a hall. Yep. And the, you're absolutely right. You know, I I don't think when Victor Hall made those lifts back in the whenever he started making them, the late fifties and in the sixties, he thought they'd be running 50 years later, but they, they are, and they're really good. They're really good, really simple concepts and they work and they last. Have you thought about putting those up in the back country or, or are you just not there? You're just hanging on to them and, and, and you'll hope for inspiration later. Yeah, we're, we kind of, we have kind of a vision, um, but we're working, ac- we're working our way across. Right. So, so we're, we're going to work, work, working, you know, kind of towards the east, towards the northeast. Mm -hmm. And when we get over there far enough, um, there's a good chance that one of the one will probably take what we have and make it into one, you know, chairlift. I I think that would be what would happen. Oh, that'd be really cool. And they'd be able to do that, even though they were made for a shorter distance, you'd be able to string them together. Yeah. Yep. You could, you'd have it all, you know, you'd have to have it all re-engineered and there, there might have to be some things that would have to be changed, obviously. And you'd, you'd be modernizing it, you know, you'd be putting a new drive in and uh, modernizing it uh, quite a bit, but uh, yeah, it could, certainly I'm sure it could be used. So let's talk about your long-term vision, Tim. And, and, and I'd imagine this is tied to the potential third peak, which has been rumored for years and years. And, and I actually have an old Caberfe trail map from the early 2000s with the outline of a third peak sketched on it and the words future development stamped over it. And that would be skiers right of North Peak. Um, so, so, so talk about the potential for a third peak. Is that still part of your plan? And do you have any kind of timeline for when you would develop that? Yeah, we're, we, we call it East peak and, um, and it's, it's being developed right now. Wow. And our plan is to put a lift on it, uh, next March. So well, we'll put it up in March, but we're, 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 we're going to take delivery on a new lift in March and, uh, we're going to put it up next, next summer. Wow. That, that is so exciting, Tim. Uh, where is that lift? Is that over, does it rise over the backcountry? terrain that new peak no that lift is actually to the skiers right of of north peak or to the coaches left skiers right if you're standing you know if you're standing at the top looking down we've got a a a high point there and that's where that lift will land it's so so the skiers right of north peak is currently backcountry so you're saying you would go off kind of the the backside or the, the side of north peak it will go from from that from that um high point that we're building right now to the bottom of shelter Okay. So it's going to, this lift, the East Peak lift is going to predominantly serve Smiling Irishman, which is going to be twice as wide as it is now at the top. So you have almost like two Smiling Irishmans. Okay. And then it will, you will either go down to the shelter run and then be able to loop that because right now you really can't, right? You get the shelter lift dumps you off mid mountain and then you have to ski down to the bottom of, of, north peak and ride one of the you know vista or the quad up and then and then so you have to do it's like a two lift ride so it'll let it'll tie those that together which is a great run you know smiling irishman to shelter is a great run and then we're working on a on a new run which is which is part of it is what used to be bobuck so if you like for the old school cabaret people you remember bobuck we have really changed it but it's it, and it's going to be a great run 
but th this that'll be another marquee run coming off this new lift is what's the old Bobak, and that'll take you back to the East Peak lift. So those, and so there'll still be a backcountry. There'll still be you'll still be able to go through the old backcountry gate, and you'll still you'll still have the the same backcountry. It's just part of it now is going to be lift served. And so this will actually be a third peak though that rises just like South Peak, North Peak. Yep, it will it will rise not quite as high as North Peak, but it will rise up a little bit there, and and um, it'll be you know it's going to be really good. I think we're really we're really excited about it. What's the vertical drop going to be on that, Tim? That one is going to be, um, you know, I, we, I, th I think it's going to be around, around four, around four hundred feet. Mm -hmm. And are you going to be digging uh, down at all, L like you did for for South and North, or, or are you going to keep keep the ground level at the bottom? Yeah, it'll stay at the same level at the bottom. It's just we're coming up on the top. Okay, so so where does the where does the land come for that? The, the, the sand come for that? Is it, is it over in your old terrain? Yeah. Over in our old terrain. Yep. Okay. So, so talk about this new lift you ordered. What did you order? Um, and, and, uh, you know, what's, what's the brand? When is it coming in? When is it coming in? So it's coming in in March. It's a Doppelmeyer triple. It's exactly like, it's exactly like the, uh, Vista lift, except the bottom terminal is a little bit different. It's a little bit different setup, but it's, it's going to look pretty similar. And does the shelter lift come out or are you keeping that in place? No, shelter lift will come out for now, you know, and then that will be put into storage and with all our other haul lift parts and then hopefully um, put back up at a later date. Um, but that, so now we're going to have, what the idea behind this lift is, is so we talked about South Peak, kind of your advanced, your expert area. North Peak is a intermediate skier's paradise, right? It's just got tons of great blue terrain. So now we're what we're improving is the, the what I call the next step, right? So if you you start on the on the carpet and you learn, and now you got to take that next step. Well, this next step is going to be fantastic because now you're going to get on a modern chairlift, and you're going to get to go to the top and you get to ski a long next two really long next step runs. And so instead of having, and that will clean up all our mid mountain congestion, everything's going to, people are just going to be spread out more and everything's going to flow real nice. And it's going to give that, that, you know, that person who's discovering skiing a, a way better experience because they're going to go to the top, they're going to get the views and then they're going to get the long runs down and it's going to be, it'll be great. Yeah, that's going to be really nice, Tim. So you anticipate that all being in place for the 2022 to 23 ski season? That's the plan. I hope so, Stuart. I w I'm, I'm a little hesitant to say it out loud on your podcast because it puts a lot of pressure on us, but that's the plan. I, I Well, I know a lot of people who are going to be very excited to hear that, Tim. That That's really phenomenal. And so, uh, you know, you referenced your long-term plan and I, I kind of assumed it was the third peak, but are there other elements to this, you know, projecting outward that you hope to eventually do? You know, you have these three mothballed uh, hall chairlifts, you have the backcountry that, that could expand. Uh, what else do you have in mind long-term that you're comfortable talking about? Yeah, I don't want to get into too many details. I certainly don't want to get into timelines or anything like that because the, 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 the truth is, you know, as we build these things, they evolve, right? So we have kind of an idea, you know, we're standing there looking into thin air saying, okay, we're going to put a bunch of fill here and this is what it's going to be. But when you actually do it, it changes. So, you know, it's hard to, and, and certainly don't want to give you any kind of a timeline because we don't know, you know, we don't know what's coming, right? So, 
but we are going to, we still want to put another lift in like the true backcountry lift. So, so the lift that everybody's been saying, why didn't you put that in first? Because we have to work our way over, right? We can't pinch ourselves off. So you have to, cause you have to keep building the top, right? You have to, you put your lift in, you got to build your top and you got to build it big enough to take a lift and big enough to handle the, the additional skiers. And then you, and then we're working our way across. So, so the next one would be the back, what we call the backcountry lift. And that will, you know, when you ski right now, the backcountry and you bottom out and you have to start walking, there'd be a lift that would somewhere down in there that would take you up to a, a peak that hasn't been built yet. And, and that might be one of those old halls. It could be, it could yeah. be. Yeah. That, that's, that's, that's really interesting, Tim. I, I think, uh, you know, as you talk about, the progression. I, I think you're right that, that you look at Caberfay and the trail map now and has a very well divided uh, trail system by ability level. So you have your, your, your experts on South Peak, your intermediate on North Peak, and you'll have your uh, green circle terrain pod on, on East Peak. And then down there at the beginning area by the Skyview Day Lodge, which you mentioned, you actually put in a few years ago a magic carpet. And the significance here for Caberfay is that took away the last rope toe. At what used to be the the king of the rope toes, w- were there any sort of uh, existential hesitation there, Tim, or or, or or sentimentality around that getting rid of the last rope toe at Caprefe, or were you like, nope, this place has got to be modern, good riddance? No, I was ready to. We we definitely wanted to move the rope toe, and I wanted to keep it. I was like, I learned to ski on a rope toe. My kids learned to ski on a rope toe. Your kids are going to learn to ski on a rope toe. You know that stubborn, you know. Uh-huh. Um, which is, which is a ridiculous way to think, but I, I was that way. And, and, uh, but we could talked about it and talked about it and talked about it. And finally I kind of gave, you know, I kind of gave and said, all right, all right, you know, all right, I'll, we'll, we'll, let's look into it. So we did. And, uh, and we had, a, we actually, uh, magic carpets, a brand, ours is a sun kid, which is a different brand. It's the same thing. And they were called, everyone calls them magic carpets, but ours is, uh, it's a Sunkid brand, which which is a, a fantastic company, and um, and and we put the the conveyor in, and I thought, and then I was like, I saw the light, you know, it's like, oh my gosh, this is so much better. This is so much better for the low end skier. What were we? Why was I being so stubborn? <laughs> and what did you guys do with that old rope toe? Did you just uh, scrap it? Yeah, yeah, we still I mean, we still have it. You know, we kept like the bottom or the top shack, the motor room and the gearbox. That's all still sitting there and basically in storage. And I wouldn't say that the rope toe won't ever go up again someday because as a secondary, you know, you have your, 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 um, your, your conveyor lift as your, as your, you know, your primary, uh, inter, your never end ever skiing, but someday, you know, a, a rope toe could go in somewhere as a supplement. So on busy days, you had another place to take people. Yeah. I'm sure the gloves of Michigan are, are, are happy that you made that decision, Tim. Um, I, I remember shredding many a glove in my younger days, learning how to ski. Yeah. Yeah. They were hard on the gloves. <laughs> Um, so right there by the magic carpet is the old Skyview Day Lodge. It's a pretty cool building. Do you still use that as overflow or, or is there, are there plans to use it in the future? Yeah, no, we do use it as overflow and, and we're actually doing some work on it right now. So it's getting a new roof um, and it's going to get some little bit of work on the interior. Uh, it's going to be like everything at Cabra people that, that ski here know that we just do a little bit at a time. So it's, you know, it's going to take a few years to get it. Um, you know, as nice as it ultimately will be, but we're, yeah, we're definitely using it. It's place for, um, 
people who bring their own lunch to go and a uh, place will will have cubbies in there and you know it's a place for you you can bring your crock pot and you can bring your lunch and and um and have a place to go yeah it's interesting you mentioned the crock pots tim that that really stands out when you go now into the black Day lodge and and there's just dozens of crock pots set along the ledge there and plugged in and, and just tons of families around those big tables there and i i think that really speaks to the atmosphere and and the the, the independent spirit of your mountain and, and how it's really a place for families. I mean, can you just talk a little bit about, about that and what sets you apart from some of the places that are a little more corporate or part of these conglomerates where, where you welcome people to kind of plug in a crock pot, go ski, ha- have this time with your family. Yeah. So, you know, we, we've, you know, our kind of our philosophy has always been, you know, if you live in Northern Michigan or you live in Michigan, you know, you should have the opportunity to ski like, you know, you have to live through these Michigan winters. You should have the opportunity to, to, to make it be one of your favorite seasons. And, you know, everybody has different, um, you know, and different economic status. So not everybody can, you know, buy a lift ticket and buy their family lunch in the, in the cafeteria. So you, you, you got to make it, you know, affordable so that, so that every, hopefully everybody can do it. And, and so, you know, we try to make it as good as we can make it so that the, the family that wants to bring their food can bring their food and have a place to put it and something that's workable and, and then have good cafeteria options for those that can, can do that and have good, really good options in the bars if you, if you want that. So when you, when you do renovate the Skyview Day Lodge, are you going to ask the folks with crockpots to move over there or is that still going to be allowed in Blackmer? No, yeah, we're going to still allow it in Blackmore at least for now, and and then have Skyview as the as like an alternate, like as an additional space, and uh, we'll see how that goes. We may limit. We may that was one of the things that came out of COVID too. You know, is is limiting, and and so we may limit the capacity in Blackmore, and then and then send the overflow up to Skyview. That that possibly will happen. Uh, and that creates a better experience for everyone. And I, I think once you get that triple chair in there, Tim, it, it, I'd imagine you'll have a kind of modern loading area there. It'll be a little easier entree because right now you, you have to start your day at shelter, right? And that gets kind of congested and, and it, it's a pretty limited capacity lift. So so I'd imagine that, that that's kind of a big part of that triple chair is you're really going to improve that experience of getting into Caberfe because the, the North and South Peak lifts are not really accessible from the lodge without a walk. Correct. Yeah. Actually, you can get to North Peak if you go to the to the by over by first aid. If you go that way, you can put you can click your skis on and you can glide over there. But um, yeah, we the the new lift, the East Peak lift is going to get it's going to move people out of the base area faster and get them up to where they can access everything. That's, that's really exciting. Uh, one, one thing Caberfe has never focused on, Tim, is terrain parks. You do have a couple now, a couple small ones um, on, on North Peak and under Shelter. Uh, talk about your philosophy around terrain parks and, and why that's not something that Caberfe focuses on building out in a big way. Yeah, so Caberfe, you know, you know, this is like kind of an old school mentality, but, you know, here, you know, the recreational skier, recreational snowboarder is the king, right? So whenever you put in a terrain park, you got to put, you got to take away terrain from your recreational skier. So that's the, that's the, that's the tug of war. Um, it's not that we don't want to have a, a, a bigger park. It's that we don't want to take prime terrain away from our recreational skiers who are, who are our bread and butter. And so we just have 
kind of limited space that we're willing to give up for parks and then and that limits what we can do and but it makes a better experience for the recreational skier and uh you know and that's the for us that's the person that's paying the freight so that's just been our philosophy it's also a big expense right tim i mean parks i I think skiers take this for granted but it's very expensive to build and maintain especially in an environment like michigan where you do have freeze thaws and 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 you you know that ruins all the features um it's 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 something you really have to invest in you you do and 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 i would say that some of our you know some of our competitors do a fantastic job with their parks they really put they really do a, a great job and and I know, you know, with our limited terrain, we just can't do what they do. And, and so, and they put a big investment in it and they get a lot of park riders as a result. And, and, uh, you know, I think, uh, yeah, I think it is really expensive. It's just not something, you know, mainly for us, it's, it's been more about terrain. We don't want to tie up, you know, a big piece of terrain that the recreational skiers are using, you know? Mm-hmm. So let's talk about snowmaking here, Tim. You mentioned when your family arrived in the early 80s, there was almost no snowmaking, which really wasn't that unusual in that era. And and that was sort of a, a big weed out time when a lot of ski areas went out of business across the country because there were some pretty mild winters in the early 80s. Uh, but your family added snowmaking. Um, you know, over time, that didn't prove to be sufficient. So you've really modernized it. So, so talk about the work you have done to modernize the snowmaking Cabaret Fay over the last several years and, and what your long-term vision is for it. Well, yeah, we, we've, we, we always, one thing we've always done, um, you know, I guess since like 06, when we, we had a really bad start to the winter, really warm and we were barely hanging on. Um, we've always done at least something for snowmaking, you know, we always, and so again, we're just simple people. So our, 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 our strategy is let's take, let's find our weaknesses and make them, turn them into strengths. And, uh, we've just, we've grown it, you know, from, from in, in, in 2000, just before I got here, they had, they already had, um, 2000 gallons per minute. They had two big pumps and wells. Um, and most of the work was done with older, uh, fixed equipment, older towers, older technology, and, portables. And now we have, um, 3000 gallons a minute. Actually, we can, we can, we can flow up to 4,000 gallons a minute if we run the older pump, but we can run 3000 gallons a minute with modern pumps, um, and a drive. So we, we've got the, like the pump house is automated and, uh, big wells to sustain that. And we have, 105 fan towers and this year we're putting up 10 more so we'll have 115 fan towers on on the hill permanent and uh, about 36 sticks that are permanent and we have four portables so we're you know we've really done a a ton and and so we can for our size uh hill you know 3,000 gallons a minute of sustainable um flow and to be able to hit 4,000 gallons a minute for spurts and having the towers everywhere, uh, it, it really has, has made us one of the, one of the leaders in, in snowmaking now. So you're able to open early, fairly consistently now, and you're able to stay open through March. You do always close Cabrefay around the third week of March, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, you definitely have the snow to stay open later. Why do you, why do you uh, end the ski season in March? 
Um, it just depends. You know, we look at it. We look. We we look at it from year to year. Um, we usually close. We usually stop skiing uh, seven days a week after the third Sunday in March because our midweek business just just runs out. You know, we just don't have midweek business. And then we're looking at weekends after that. And we've skied into April a few times and we skied into the last weekend in March a few times. And we just look at it year to year. We look at the weather. We look at the, you know, we're getting a lot of calls. You know, what what's what's the long range? What's the short-term weather? What's the long-term weather? Is there much interest? And then we just kind of take it year by year. So it just depends. So let's talk about your season passes here, Tim. This is really one of the best values in skiing with the, the $99 pass that you introduced back in 2007. So, so talk about that your season passes and, and why you decided to start offering this discount pass. Yeah. So it went back to when in our early days, we, we had, we had seven um, golf memberships. We sold seven golf memberships and, and we were just couldn't get anybody on that golf course. And, you know, we came up with this idea of, maybe we could sell a $99 golf membership and we, and we did it. We had some, we had some restrictions on it, but we sold it. And how you much know, was it before that? Uh, it was about, I think it was about 500, maybe 599 a person or something, you know, almost $600. Mm-hmm. And we went to the $99 model. We had a $99 pass. And then we had a $199 pass. We had two, mm-hmm. um, but we sold, I think nearly 400, the first year of the $99 passes, which I thought if we sold 30, I'd be ecstatic. <laughs> it was unbelievable. So we, and then, and then the next year we raised it like to 109 and it fell way off. So the following year we went back to 99 and it, and it took, so, so 99 was a price point, right? People, people would buy it and then, and then ask what they bought. And so it was, it, and it was, uh, you know, you're replacing, it's, it's a volume-based business, but when you have no volume, then volume is okay, right? <laughs> like, <laughs> nothing, you got to get something. So we had to get something, and that's what we did. And then, you know, the scary, we're plugging along, you know, we were making advances, we were we were getting our lifts running better, and we were we were making better snow, and we were grooming it better, and we were, we were gaining. I think we were gaining, but we were, again, we're like, man, is there a way to sell a $99 pass? And we came up with that model. I just thought, let's try that and see how it goes. And it was, it was very popular. Okay. It got, it got us a lot of exposure. Yeah. How much was your ski pass before that? It was like about, I think it was, a, it was about th- right around $300, I think for a, for an unlimited pass. So the $99 pass, as you introduced it in 2007, was that a, Weekend only pass was that a ninety nine dollars season pass? What was that product? Yeah, so it was ninety nine dollars for weekends. You could get you could get a ninety nine dollar pass for all Saturdays and all Sundays, no no limitations, or you could get a ninety nine dollar pass for all midweek days. You know, Monday through Friday, no limitations, or for one ninety eight, you could get an unlimited pass. And and what effect did that have on your business once you introduced that product, your ski business? So so it it really took off. So we 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 sold a lot of the $99 weekend passes. That was really, really popular. And, and just a lot of them. Yeah, it was, it was very popular. So it brought a lot of people to, to Capper Fay. And did, did you make up enough in volume to, to make up for the price reduction, right? Because obviously you have to sell a lot more $99 passes to make 
the same amount of money as 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 three hundred dollar passes, right? Right. Yeah, we did. We did, and we and and then some. And but it's a tougher way to go, you know, because you're you're always you're always packed, like you're always running, you know, at capacity, and it's so it's a, it's a harder way to do it. Um, but that's again, we had capacity, so we needed to we needed to max it to see you know to see what we we could do. So for us, it worked. Are there any numbers you can give us around ski passes? How many you sold before, and and how many you sold after you dropped the price? Um, no, I'm not going to give you numbers, but uh, it was it's you know it was a like about a 75 percent increase in in wow. number you know of passes. Is ninety nine dollars still the price, Tim? Um, it actually it isn't, and that was a, that was something that you know with COVID we had to. We were we knew we were going to have to limit our 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 capacity. We couldn't we couldn't pack the place during COVID. So we raised that weekend pass price to 149 and that midweek pass to 149. And, um, and then I guess it's, it's 298 for an unlimited pass. And that's our, that's our preseason sale price. We did that last year and we like that. That was, that was good. That was made a little bit. We just took off, took it, it's carved out just a little bit of the, of the extra volume on the weekends and it made a better experience for the people that were here. So we're going to keep that moving forward. Yeah. I'm actually, I'm looking at your website right now, Tim, I'm seeing a $249 price for the, for the season pass. So it looks like you're actually giving folks a break if, okay. they, if they do a seven day pass. You're right. You're right. Yep. And that's, that's limited time. I think if you look at that, I think it, I think that expires on September 30th. Am I, am I correct? Uh, you know, I, I don't see a date, but uh, either way, if you're listening, get them now. <laughs> yeah, get them now. Yep, get them now. Because that, that I, can, I prom- that's a, that's still the best deal around. Like I, I don't know anybody else at, of any other ski area in the Midwest that you can buy a hundred and forty nine dollar weekend pass or a hundred and forty nine dollar midweek pass or even a two hundred and forty nine dollar unlimited pass. I don't know. If, I, I think it's still the best deal around. But I know it'll be the lowest. It's not going to be lower than that. Yeah, it's it's phenomenal deal. And actually, Tim, um, you've been an Indy Pass partner since the beginning. And Capperface season pass holders, if they buy that two hundred forty nine dollar pass, can add an Indy Pass on for a hundred dollar discount. So an Indy Pass is normally two hundred seventy nine dollars. If you are a Capperface season pass holder, you can add it on for one hundred seventy nine dollars, and that would give you two days at Crystal Mountain and Shanty Creek, and a bunch of places in the UP, and a bunch of places out west, and a bunch of places out east, including Jay Peak, and and some really great ski areas. Talk about the Indy Pass and and your and how that partnership has worked out for you going into season number three now. Um, it's it's uh, it's pretty cool. Uh, it, I like the Indy Pass concept, right? Because you have all the big. Mountain Collective and the Epic Pass and all the big, big conglom guys have their big passes. And the Indy Pass is kind of cool because you're taking the, what I like. It's like us, right? The, the independents, the lesser knowns, and you're combining them all together and making a pretty powerful brand. Um, and, you know, we're getting we're getting some, you know, we're getting some something out of it. You know, it's it's I think it's good. One of the things that Doug Fish told me, the Indy Pass founder, when I interviewed him recently, was Pat's Peak out in the Northeast, which is in New Hampshire, told him that something like 90% of Indy Pass redemptions to Pat's Peak were first-timers, right? So it was bringing in folks who, who wouldn't normally have visited there. Are you seeing the same at Cabaret? A, a lot of folks who are discovering your ski are using Indy Pass? 
You know, I, I, I reached out to Pete when I saw that question and he was going to ask mm-hmm. me that. And, and uh, we don't know that number. We don't have that percentage. Mm-hmm. Just going back to your, to your season pass for a moment here, Tim, how, how much did lowering your pass price kind of change the equation for stabilizing Cabrefe from a business point of view? Did, did, did this create a, a kind of nice stable revenue source that you could count on every year? It did. It did. We, we were, you know, we were, I think we were, we were doing good things and we were going to, you know, we were slowly gaining traction. Um, but, but it really got us into a place where we were in a lot better financial footing and it allowed us to just keep reinvesting. That's all we want to do, right? We want to do construction in the summer to make the place better. And it allowed us to just keep doing that. Yeah. Uh, season pass holders. I thought this was interesting. My, my friend had a season pass and I was, skiing with her over there and, and she's, you know, I had to go buy my lift ticket and she stopped in to get a lift ticket. And I said, Oh, you have to get a new lift ticket every time. But why is it that that season pass holders go up and get a new lift ticket every time they come? Yeah. So we just, we have a different ticket every day. It's the old, kind of the old school way, but it's very reliable. You know, it works. It's reliable. Um, and, and we really like that system and it allows us to track, track what's going on really well because we've got our, you know, if you're a pass holder, you come up and you get a ticket and we can mark, we mark that down. Who's, who's here. And, and, um, and, and then they have a ticket that has to be attached. So it can't be transferred. And, uh, it's just a really reliable, you know, system. I really love your lift tickets, Tim. I, I actually have some from back in the nineties and they're for people who know about a cabaret. They're very cool. They're colorful. They're patterned. They're creative. There's you never know what you're going to get with the Cabaret lift ticket. And, and I kind of look forward to it. Oh, what's the lift ticket going to be today? Talk a little bit more about who designs those for you. And, and, and do you have a different design for every day going back forever? So, you know, great question. My dad still does that. He still does wow. the designs. Uh, he likes that. And he works with, you know, whatever label companies making them for us, you know, different, different companies over the years and they work on it together. And, uh, and then, we have um, a different design for every day and they don't reap, they will sometimes repeat, but not for, not for years. And there's quite a system to that. I'm not going to get into it too much because that's kind of secret stuff. So you're still committed to the, uh, the metal wicket tickets and, and these have disappeared. And I actually love metal wicket tickets. I think they're really cool. It's sort of like a little memento of the ski day. Um, it's, talk about staying with that system rather than going to RFID gates or, or a scanning system. Well, you know, those RFID gates are really cool, but that is really expensive. I mean, that's yeah. a big investment. And, and, you know, if you, and I just, I don't think it makes sense for us. I think it, I think that's a lot of money to spend on something that I don't think is really a lot more convenient. You know, I think that, yeah, you know, these people, oh, yeah, you got to go get a ticket, but yeah, but once you put that ticket on, if you have that ticket on where, where we can see it, it's a done deal. Nobody's really going to, the, the ticket checker is going to look at it and there he's not going to hardly say anything and you're going to go by all day. So really, when you think about it, for as far as being less invasive, you go get that ticket, put it on somewhere where we can see it and have fun. Right. And it's pretty simple. Kind of in that same spirit, Tim, Keberfe has a really cool trail map. It's, it's, it's uh, very colorful. It, it almost looks hand-drawn and, and a lot of folks have gone to more realist style, but talk, talk about Cabrefe's trail map and who makes that for you. Well, that one, um, was done by the guy who does our website 
you know, and he just took a, like an aerial photo and, and put that together on his, on his computer. And even that was a big upgrade from what we had before, which I think it was drawn with a magic marker. You know? <laughs> so uh, that, that is, that is what we've had for years, but we just actually are in the process right now of having a, a company, a professional company make us a, a, a modern trail map. So that's, that'll be, that'll be un, unveiled this fall. Okay, great. Do you want to talk about the company or are you keeping that tight? You know, that again, that's something that's Pete's handling and I can't even, I can't even remember the name of the company. They're, they're, who was the painter that did all the, that did all the hand-drawn ones? That's James Newhouse. James Newhouse. He did a lot of beautiful maps over the years and that, and this other company is kind of the modern computer version of James Newhouse. Mm -hmm. I can't wait to see that, Tim. That's going to be really cool. If you look at your old hand-drawn maps, which it looks like when I'm looking online, you made the transition around 2006 or so. But talk about who, who made that map, because those are really sort of iconic, I think. I, I, I still have a lot of those going back to the 90s. Yeah, so the hand-drawn maps were uh, Pete's sister. So that would be Jack's daughter, mm-hmm. uh, was quite an artist. And she did those. And she did those when she was, like, in high school. She just drew, drew those. <laughs> Isn't that cool? Yeah, those are really awesome. Uh, th- those are great momentum. No, those those would be the colored ones from the from you know from the rec- more recent than eighties. I don't know who did the old maps. You know that Cabaret had. Yeah, there's. I don't know. If, I don't know if you've seen these ones online, but there's there's one online from 1949. I'll I'll send it to you and I'll post it with the article that goes with this podcast so everyone can see it. It's it's really cool to see. Um, so so last. April, Tim, uh, right after the COVID shutdown, Liftopia defaulted on payments to many of its partners. Uh, a number of them, including uh, Boyne, ended up trying to force them into bankruptcy in federal court out in California. Uh, Liftopia was able to fend that off. Um, you'd used Liftopia in the past. Did they owe you any money last year and did they make good on it? Yeah, we, we're, all, we're all good with Liftopia and, um, and still, you know, have a lot of confidence in, in them and we, we continue to use them. Yeah. A lot of scary operators I've spoken with have been adamant that they didn't want to use what's now called Catalate for kind of the back end. What made you decide to move forward with confidence with them? Um, you know, we were, we were one of Liftopia's first customers. And uh, so we just have a long, a long time relationship with them and, talk to the guys and and kind of understand where they're at and what's going on. And we're, we're, we're just believing them. We're confident that they're going to, they're going to be around because their product is great and uh, their platform is great. And, and so, you know, we're, we really like the product and we, we believe in them. So we're going to, we're going to continue to stick with them. Hopefully they'll, they'll do okay. So uh, shifting here to COVID, Tim, I know last season was weird for everybody. I, I was as an outsider, I was really impressed with how the ski industry handled COVID and how they prepared and how they had a willingness to rethink the way that things were done for a long time. And I know at Cabaret actually, you've, you've, you're constantly evolving, constantly changing, constantly rethinking things and making the ski area better. Um, but having gone through that exercise, how did last season go? How was the 2020 to 21 ski season for Cabaret? Uh It was, it was really good. And, and it, you know, this time last year, I was completely, completely overwhelmed with how are we going to, how are we actually going to pull this off? How are we going to operate? How's this going to work? Um, and, and by the time, and we had a, a, 
a committee of ski area operators, and we would meet every Fridays on every Friday on Zoom in August and September, and even through October, right into November, and talk about you know what the NSAA was doing and what we thought we should do, and we kind of talked it all through and came up with a consensus plan, and um, and and then recommended it to the whole state so that everybody was doing the same thing, and I think we had a really good plan and. Uh, and I, and I, and then once we started going, it, it was fine. You know, it was, it was just what we had to do. And I'd say the vast majority of the skiers accepted it. They were just happy to be there and they were willing to mask up and do what they needed to do. And it, it really just, it went fine. So what did you learn, Tim? I, I, I think, you know, I've asked this question to every general manager that I've interviewed this season or, or, or this year it is it was inconvenient and expensive to redo all this, but I'm sure you learned a lot. Is, did you learn anything that you're going to carry forward into your operating plan in the future? Well, I think, I think the big thing we, we learned, you know, is when we limited, we limited capacity on Saturdays and that, that got, that let the people that were here have a, a better experience. So, and we did, we did that by, you know, raising the price up on the season pass a little bit so that it, so that it was still a great deal, but it was a little bit more expensive and that cut some of that extra volume off. And I think that was, but we, but people had a better experience. So I think that was a great lesson, you know, of, of, you know, Hey, this is, this is maybe a better way to do it. You know? Well, Tim, I, uh, I can't thank you enough for your time today. It, it sounds like you have a lot of really exciting things happening at Cabra Fay. Uh, personally, I'm really excited about this trail map. I can't wait to see that. Uh, but that East Peak project sounds amazing. I can't wait to get up and ski it. Uh, I, I thank you very much for your time today and wish you the best of luck in continuing to evolve Cabra Fay well into the future. Thank you, Stuart. It's sure, sure is, um, I pr- really appreciate you uh, wanting to do a story on Cabra Fay, and I, I appreciate your time as well. Tim, that's Tim Meyer, co-owner and general manager of Mountain Operations at Caberfay Peaks, Michigan. I want to say first of all that Tim is a class guy. We recorded a version of that interview once before, and the audio was somehow completely compromised, and we recorded that just before COVID hit in February 2020. By the time I realized I couldn't fix it, it was way too late. It took me a long time to get the nerve to ask him to completely redo the interview, but Tim agreed without hesitation. I cannot tell you how much I appreciate that. I hate wasting anyone's time, and I felt really bad about the way that went down, but I'm so glad that Tim can make that right. Anyway, if you're a Caberface skier, how jacked are you for that place's future? And how much more sense does the whole place make now that you've heard from the owner and you understand their whole philosophy? Skiing needs more Caberface, and it needs more Tim Myers and folks like the Meyer family. What an absolutely incredible operation. Thank you all for listening. If you're wondering why I've been wandering out of the Northeast these past few months with my podcast guests, that's been deliberate. And I'm about to blow this whole thing open. The Storm Skiing Podcast is going national this fall. I have some big, big interviews lined up with some household names. I'm not ready to announce those just yet, but follow me on Twitter at Storm Ski Journal to get that lineup as soon as I'm ready to share it. And don't worry, I am not abandoning the Northeast. You can still expect plenty of podcasts focus on New England, New York, New Jersey, Pennsylvania. The best way to follow everything, subscribe to the free Storm Skiing newsletter at stormskiing.com. Also, tell your friends. Or, don't tell them, just sign them up. 
as a surprise. Trust me, they will thank you if they love skiing. Stay well, stay safe. I'm Stuart Winchester, and I will talk to you again very soon. The Storm Skiing Podcast is a Quicksilver Films production.